Um, this morning we are James chapter 4, and uh, looking at the first 12 verses. Let's turn to James chapter 4, and we'll read from verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbour? Well, let's come to God in prayer again as we ask for his help as we come around his word. Loving God, we do thank you for the privilege again of coming around your word. We thank you that your word is ever faithful, that your word never changes and endures forever. We thank you that your word is the power to transform, that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We thank you, God, that more than any of this, your word is your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is him we long to see, it is him we long to know, and it is his power that will transform us. 
So God, please show us Christ again in your word. Show us his glory and greatness and worth. And please change us from within, we pray. In Christ's name. Amen. I wonder what do you think um, churches are known for in our society? Or perhaps what is, what is our little church here known for? Or perhaps what, what should it be known for? Or what do we want it to be known for? One of you ever heard a, a church, a particular church, mentioned... And someone will follow that up by saying something like, that's the place with all the problems, isn't it? Or, that's, that's the place that, that had a split. Now, this may seem like a pessimistic place to begin this morning, but as we turn to James, we see there's nothing new under the sun. In our passage this morning, James highlights a problem, he diagnoses the cause, and he presents the solution. So firstly, let's think about the problem. Even in the early days of the church, James is writing to scattered believers, believers in different parts, and what does he ask? Verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Now James can ask this, as the norm among many churches was quarrels and fights. That is ongoing hostility, disputes, feuds, outbursts and whatever else. James uses language that is linked to war. It's the word quarrels or battles and fights. He uses the word war. He uses murder in verse 2. Now, you may say this seems all a bit extreme. It's a bit dramatic. Quarrels and fights, surely, are are part and parcel of church life. I think it's true we can become immune to church conflict. We can roll our eyes. We can shrug our shoulders and simply move on. But I believe James is making the point that quarrels and fights are no small thing in the church. We should never feel immune to them. Like war, they are devastating, destructive, and damaging. So James asks the question, and then he answers it for his hearers. He says, is it not this, that your passions or pleasures are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now this passage follows on from what we thought about last week on wisdom. And it is here we're seeing the outworking of earthly wisdom, the outworking of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And the result is quarrels and fights. Now, the words passions, desires, and covet, they're all very similar. And the idea here is there is something we want, there's something that these believers want for our pleasure 
But we don't get it, and so we kick off. So perhaps in the church it may be we want, we want recognition, we want thanks for something that we've done well. Perhaps you want respect and honour. You feel you should be consulted or should have been consulted about a decision or an event. Perhaps it's more simple things. You don't like the way the chairs are arranged. You don't like the music. Perhaps you have doctrinal differences. Perhaps you have rule-keeping differences. So much thought and concern for, for self-wisdom. My thoughts, my feelings, my recognition, my pride, my principles that leads to quarrels and fights. Church arguments and splits are rarely over matters of primary theology. Think about it. What churches do you know who are quarreling and fighting over the doctrine of God? Or perhaps the person of Christ or the authority of Scripture. Well, James goes on, he says, You do not have because you do not ask. What is it that these believers are so hungry for? Now, perhaps from chapter 3, they are wanting to be recognized as leaders and teachers. They're wanting the honour of the position, but they don't have the right wisdom. Now, if you remember back to chapter 1, James told the believers, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all. They have not received wisdom from above because they have not asked, or perhaps in their arrogance they didn't think they needed to ask. But others have asked with the wrong motive. Verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. It's like the prodigal son who asked for his inheritance, not so he could invest it wisely, but to squander his inheritance on reckless living for his own pleasure. James says you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. Do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus said in Luke 11, ask and you will receive. Jesus said, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Now, we've got to remember that Jesus says this in the context of the Lord's Prayer. So, Jesus is saying, ask not for your pleasures, not for what you want, but what God wants. Ask for God's recognition and honour. Ask for His kingdom to come. Ask Him for what we need. See, that's the point of prayer. Not to get what we want but to have what God wants in our lives. And of course we can apply this teaching on prayer to much, much wider than the local church. I mean, how often do we pray for our pleasures, for God to do something to make us feel better, rather than praying for God's glory, for God's name to be honoured? So we see the problem. 
Secondly, this morning, there's the cause. Now, you may think that James has already given the cause of these problems. He has painted quite the picture, but he has yet to come to the very root cause of the problem. And in verse 4, he hits them with it, and this is perhaps the most hard-hitting words in James. Look at verse 4. You adulterous people. Now, the Bible refers to our relationship with God as a marriage. For example, Isaiah 54, we read, Your maker is your husband. The other prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, use similar language. The whole book of Hosea portrays God and his people as a marriage. Paul too refers to God's relationship with his people as a marriage in several of his letters. And in the end, Revelation refers to a great marriage celebration between God and his people. Now, of course, the point of marriage is lifelong faithfulness to one spouse. And James is saying here, you believers, you have committed adultery, you have cheated on God. Now, think about this. Because as believers, we are outraged when adultery occurs in marriage. And yet, as believers, we seem so comfortable with cheating on God. And can you see now how the quarrels and and the fights are so insignificant? James isn't so concerned with who's right and who's wrong. He's not so concerned with thrashing out all the details of these quarrels. These petty little fights are the least of your worries, James says. You have been cheating on God. And so we must ask, how we go about addressing quarrels and fights in the church when they arise? Do we primarily address the problems the individuals have with each other? Or do we address the problem the individual has with God? And I can't help wondering if we did, how might things be worked out differently? People may be much quicker to back down and control their tongue. James goes on, verse 5, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And here James is saying to these believers, he says, you're professing allegiance to God, but you're living as a friend of the world. You're feeding your pleasures through the very things that God is hostile to. And this comes as as a stern warning. Don't think you can live like an enemy of God and experience God's close fellowship as a friend. It's like marriage again. Two people are married, they're bound together. That fact does not change. But don't think you can cheat on your spouse 
and still experience the same close, intimate fellowship that marriage should be. James continues, Do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit he has made to dwell in us? Now, this is not a quote from scripture, but scripture does speak about God being jealous for his people. And when we think of jealousy, it's often in the, the negative um, sense, but God's jealousy is, is good, holy, and loving jealousy. In a marriage, again, we, we could say we, we are jealous for our spouse's faithfulness and, and loyalty. That is a good jealousy. I mean, there's something wrong if a spouse cheats on us and there's no sense of jealousy, no sense of wanting to draw them back. And we know that God chose us. God brought us to himself in friendship, bound us to himself in marriage because of his great love for us, Deuteronomy 7. And God is jealous for our love to him. We read in Exodus 20. God says, You shall have no other gods before me. And God gives the reason. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God loves his people. And he is rightly jealous for their love and loyalty to him. That they might know the close and intimate fellowship that they have been called to with him. Listen to what we read in Hosea 11. As I said, the whole picture of Hosea is a marriage between God and his people. We read in Hosea 11, my people are bent on turning away from me. Listen to what God says. How can I give you up? How can I hand you over? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger, for I am God and not a man. The Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. If someone were unfaithful to us, we would certainly execute our burning anger. But God is not a man. We cheat on him. And when we are bent on living the way he doesn't want us to live, he is not there to get revenge or to push us away, but he is there jealously longing for us to come to him to know his love. Isn't that truly remarkable? Our sin is so great, and yet God's love is so much greater. God is jealous for his people. For the spirit he put within us to mend our divided and broken hearts and to bring us to wholeness and completeness. And this brings us to the solution or the cure to our hearts. When we sin, we've seen that God wants us to come close to him 
and he provides what we need to do that. The cure for our hearts is the beginning of verse 6. But he gives more grace. The cure for our hearts is the grace of God. Whatever our need is, God's grace is enough. When we have daily need, there is daily grace. When there is overwhelming need, there is overwhelming grace. When we are weak, there is strengthening grace. When we are weighed down, there is grace to lift us up. When we feel trapped, there is grace to free us. When we are selfish and bitter and pursuing pleasure outside of God, there is grace to draw us back and change us from within. In fact, where sin abounds in our lives, grace abounds all the more. One writer says, God is tirelessly on our side. Now the question is, how do we receive this grace? Well, you read the rest of verse 6. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to the humble. Again, verse 10, humble yourselves. The whole focus of these next verses is humility. We receive God's grace through humility. Think about the prodigal son again. He left his father's house. He was far from his father. He squandered all he had on reckless living and found himself in dire need. We read in Luke 15, verse 17, that when he came to himself, in other words, when he caught himself on, he said, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He realized his sin. And he went to his father, demanding nothing but recognizing his sin and unworthiness. And as the son returned in humility, we read the son was still a long way off. His father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The son's humility led him to the warmth of the father's love and embrace again. Now for us, humility begins at the cross of Jesus Christ. When we came to God recognizing our deepest need of God's grace in Christ, recognizing we are sinful and unworthy and undeserving of Christ to die in our place and bring us into forever relationship with God. We need God's grace in Christ to bring us into relationship with God and we need God's grace in Christ again and again and again to keep us in close fellowship 
with God. Now what follows God's promise of grace is a list of commands. James says, submit to God. That is, recognize his rule over us and and submit to his commands. Obey his commands. He says, resist the devil. Be aware, spiritual attack will always be there. We've got to be ready to fight it. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. That is, change your actions on the outside, your motives from within. Mourn and weep. See, God's grace in Christ is always there in abundance. But this is not a quick fix to sanctification or a whole heart. God's grace does not take us out of spiritual battle, but enables us for the battle day by day. And to receive God's grace day by day, we humble ourselves day by day. We come to God in repentance, confessing our sin, mourning our sin, our selfishness, our spiritual adultery. Recognize that we desperately need his grace to change us, to strengthen us to obey him and resist the devil. And as we come back to God again and again, as we draw near to God, God will draw near to us. The drawing near to God here, it is a deliberate, intentional act to cultivate fellowship with him. We are speaking here about believers restoring their relationship with God, not the salvation of unbelievers. And I think as believers, we so often want this the other way around. As believers, yes, we want to feel close to God. We want to feel his love in greater measure. But just like that, without ever really doing anything, James says the way to closeness with God, the way to experience his love in greater measure, is a lifetime of humble repentance. And the great promise as we do that, God draws near to us as we draw near to him. God's desire has always been to be close with his people. We think back to the very beginning, God had close fellowship with Adam and Eve. We knew that their sin broke that fellowship. And God desires our fellowship so much that he sent Christ to die so we could be brought back into fellowship with God again. And the life we now have in Christ is one of growing in closer love and fellowship with God and in the end when our hearts are whole what we get from God is whole fellowship closeness love God's goal for us is to know his love in all its fullness and depth and completeness And as we draw near to God, as we know his closeness and fellowship, then we will mourn the times that we seek pleasure and joy outside of him. 
we will fight to resist the devil. We will submit to God. We will cleanse our hands and we will purify our hearts. Now, having emphasized humility before God, James returns to the issues within the church. He says, verse 11, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. He uses brothers three times, um, really emphasizing the family nature of the church. And the point here is that if you have truly realized your own sin, if you have been welcomed back by God, even though you have cheated on him, well, you're not in any position to speak against a brother or sister. And if you do, James says, you become a judge of the law. That is, basically, you think you're above the law of God. But there is only one who is above the law, verse 12, one who is able to save and destroy. That is God himself. So who are you to judge your neighbour? And as James mentions neighbour, it brings us back to what he taught in chapter 2 about the royal law. Rather than judge your neighbour, rather than judge your brother or sister, what do we do? We love them. This is quite possibly taken from Leviticus, Leviticus 19. Um, And there we read, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not hate your brother. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And the point of obedience to God's law was that others would see and know how good it is to know and love God. And Jesus reiterated this very same principle. He said, love one another, because by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So I come back to where we began. What is the church known for? What is our church known for? What should we be known for? I trust my prayer is that we will be known for having a deep love for one another and a deeper love for God. Wouldn't it be great if people around the country talked about us and said, see the people in Kirkavon Baptist, they're so close with each other. It seems all they want to do is be closer to God. We had such a helpful conversation on Wednesday evening about evangelism. And I believe firmly if we are known, if we are known by God's love, people will be drawn to that love and they too will be changed by that love. Let's pray together.
Our God, we thank you that you have loved us. Not because we were lovable or deserving or were any better than anyone else. But you loved us because you loved us. And you brought us to yourself. You brought us into fellowship. Into that marriage-like relationship forever with you. And God, we thank you that even though we are unfaithful, even though we cheat you many times, God, that you, your love, will remain. We thank you that you are jealous over our love and loyalty to you. So God, this morning we pray that you will humble us. We pray that in humility we would recognize our sin, that we would recognize our spiritual adultery to you, that we would cleanse our hands and purify our hearts. And that as we come closer to you in humble repentance, that we would know your love in greater measure, that we would know your closeness. And that as we know and sense fellowship and relationship with you, that we would appreciate again there is nothing greater, there is nothing that will satisfy more. So God, as we draw closer to you, may we more and more cleanse our hands and purify our hearts and in turn be brought closer even again and just have this beautiful cycle of drawing close to you. Father, we pray that our fellowship here would be known um, as, that we would be known as people who have a deep love for each other and people who have an even greater and deeper love for God. Father, we pray that others would be drawn to this love and fellowship. And we do pray that your love would change their hearts and transform them and bring them to you into close fellowship with us and with you. So, Father, continue your work in our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.